Yo, what's up, y'all? Happy New Year. From me to you, Peter Augustin in the house list. Welcome to a new year, new episodes. It's 2018. Uh, what's up, y'all? How you feeling? You guys doing good? You feeling good? I'm feeling pretty good. I'm feeling great. Thank you for asking. Um, and we have a wonderful conversation to kick off this new year with the one and only Joseph Patel, a.k.a. Jazzbo. And uh, I recorded this conversation on New Year's Eve, so um, in the afternoon. And, uh, you know, Jasbo is a, a writer that I've known, a name I've known for a long, long time. And uh, so we kind of riff. Our conversation is like riffing, but it's me, you know, asking him about his life and his career. And for some of you um, that may remember his work, say, at Herb Magazine, which as you listen to this podcast, oftentimes I might uh, reference that now uh, the defunct essentially, but it was a very pivotal uh, rag that I wrote for um, and many other great, great writers uh, that went to do a lot of good things, a lot of published authors, professors, um, and so on. And uh, Joseph Patel was uh, part of that crew. Uh, he also was an integral uh, piece to the establishment of Soul Sides, uh, the imprint uh, which you know came out of uh, UC Davis, out of the radio station there. Uh, via Jeff Chang, DJ Shadow, Black Alicious, and, um, you know, uh, this is pre-Quantum, so we talk about the Bay a little bit, Soul Sides, and uh, his career, because he's went on to do a lot of great things at MTV and Vice and Fader and so on. So um, I'm really happy and uh, excited to share this with you. If this is your first time tuning in, hey, Thank you. Check it out. You can subscribe to this great podcast called The House List, um, where many podcasts are found. So the Stitcher app, if you're on, if you if you only check out stuff on Google Play, is there. iTunes, of course. Please subscribe there, and if you can't rate it and review it, you know I guess that means something. And then SoundCloud, of course. So shout out to all my people that listen on SoundCloud because you guys make a tremendous impact when you. Uh, repost these and uh, I peep it out and I really appreciate it so you can go to soundcloud.com backslash the houseless podcast I'm also at twitter at houseless pod for any and all updates on the podcast so what a year we just went through eh? man damn and it's freezing in New York as well so it's New Year's Day I'm recording this New Year's Day and all I'm doing today is um, watching Unsolved Mysteries, as I often do, um, going through some tapes and some CDs, <laughs> and uh, I was gone for a couple weeks down in Virginia, unpacking, and just lounging, um, you know what I'm saying? So, and I, hopefully I get some reading done as well. I'm not just going to watch Unsolved Mysteries all day. I got a couple hours in so far, though. Um... But I do want to say a couple things about some great, great artists and friends of mine that uh, that we lost in this year previous. So I would be remiss to not mention some of these people because I worked with them directly. I was friends with some of them and, and also fans, especially in the hip hop world specifically, because there's so many great musicians that we lost last year. 
Uh, but my my friend and a big supporter of the Houseless podcast, DJ Steph, who is and will continue to be terribly missed. Um, another great DJ in the Bay who just recently passed, Pam the Functress of the Coup. And I've been working as the Coup's booking agent for several years now, too. So that was very heartbreaking. I, and I, in fact, remember interviewing Pam and Boots when I was making my documentary. Um back in 1999 in a hotel room in Portland, Oregon. And what's kind of interesting is that our guest today, Joey Patel, a.k.a. Jazzbo, I interviewed probably that year, if not the next year, in New York City. And um, also, I just want to send a, a rest in peace, and I was quite heartbroken when I saw this, that Ganja K of uh, First Brigade, Project Blowed, and just an incredible MC that never really, truly ever got its due um, he passed very recently too, tragically, and I, and um, I was pretty heartbroken about that. He had an album called Harvest for the World, which I had a cassette dub of uh, many, many years ago. In fact, probably 20 years ago at this point in time, if not more. That's absolutely incredible. It's one of my favorite albums of all time that was never really released. I know that Ganja just uh, recently put it up on his Bandcamp page, so I would uh, recommend keeping it out it's not exactly the same version that i got back in the day which was originally meant to be on palace records short-lived label that also put out e-rule and um the bushwhackers and uh some other stuff so yeah i just it just sucks man because people he didn't get his due in my opinion um and he was an incredible writer and you know i just want to say rest in peace to him and to if you lost any friends or family this year too i extend that out to, to all of y'all too so anyway let's move on with this podcast you know i love doing this it's a way to document artists and i and i include writers and journalists under that whole banner to me it, it's a fine art uh, no matter what your style is or your approach aesthetically so and i and i think um the guy that i'm talking to it absolutely qualifies for that, and he has some amazing stories. So uh, settle in and peep this great, great conversation out with Jasbo, only here on the podcast called The House List. I'm your host, Peter Agostin. Every episode is edited and engineered by CJ Stewart. Yo, I just hope you guys um, have a wonderful new year. Many more episodes to come as I continue on with this joint. Tell a friend about it. You know, put it up on your blog if you have one, or even just post it on your Facebook page or whatever. But let's get the word out and continue to with this joint called the Houseless Podcast. If any great episodes, go back as well if this is your very first time, because this is our 66th episode as we start 2018 off. You know what I'm saying? All right, let's jump into this. Thank you, guys. It's funny... Because I wanted to, there, you know, obviously you come from the Bay, so there's, uh, you, but you sort of um, have a few different starting points, I guess, in the music industry, if you will, but even back then. Uh, and, and I know you, and most people know you through, you know, music journalism mm -hmm. stuff, especially there's like a kind of constituency of, uh, of writers from a period of time that all kind of contributed to a range of the same magazines for the most part. Yeah. But at the same time though, like there's the whole like early soul sides thing too. Yeah. So I, I would love to at least try to track 
back to how like w- how you got involved with both of those things because I know you went to, you went to Davis right yeah UC Davis um, so, so does it really start there or? no it actually starts in high school nice, so okay. I went I went to high school in the Bay in Fremont California and I um, I was sort of prior to that I was into music the way anybody any kid was into music and I remember. I was notorious for my parents used to scream at me all the time. Like even when I was like, I think I was like eight or nine years old. I was I was the guy that would the RCA record club or cassette club. Uh-huh. I would I would like I was like eight eight tapes for a penny. Like not <laughs> not knowing that you had to then buy buy one every month, right? Right. And so I would like a box would show up with like eight cassettes and like Van Halen and Run DMC and all this stuff. And my my mom would be like, "What? Why did you sign up for this? Like you know this isn't <laughs> free." And I was like, "But it says it's for a penny." Um, and when I got to high school, I became super music obsessed because I, I found a couple of friends, one friend in particular, um, who was more into music than I was. And so he was sort of like my guiding light into a bunch of shit I had never heard before. Oh, nice. So high school was really when I became obsessed with music. What was his name? Noel Tolentino. Right. And, um, and he lives here. Actually, he lives in Fort Greene. We oh, both no ended up in New York. Um, and so we would go to we would, he would get me into things he'd make me tapes of stuff I'd never heard before and then I would take that and just start running right like he he introduced me to I think he introduced me to the Cocteau Twins oh cool and then I became obsessed with 4AD and I would dig yeah. into 4AD stuff and then I would find the thing that I liked from 4AD which is a little different from what he liked and so my like my one of my first obsessions was Wolfgang Press. Oh, interesting. Right. I okay. really, I really love that band. Still love that band. And then Pixies. I remember I had turned him onto the Pixies because I had seen their record, the Surfer Rosa, Come On Pilgrim, and I, and I was like, oh my god, you got to hear this. It's so different from everything else on Forty. Like, so it was a real. He was a real guiding light for me, and 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 I think much to my parents' dismay, like he got uh-huh. me into music, and and music was really then became the gateway into how I got into. Like how I started to see the world and how I got into everything else. Right. You read the liner notes and you look at the photography and the design, and you start to learn about design, photography, literature, and you know a Cure song after an, uh, a Camus novel, and then you find out who Camus is, and that be, you know so music was sort of the lens in which I looked at everything, but also like my the gateway drug to getting into everything else. Yeah. Um, and then and then. Noel was a part of this like little skate crew in Fremont that one of these guys, one another guy in that crew started making a zine called Gus. Oh, okay. Gus. I'm not familiar with it that. It was like a skate zine, you know, really local Fremont thing. And then, um, and, and then when Noel got to Santa Cruz, he made a, he made a, well, no, in high school. So for Gus, um, I think, so at some point, senior year of high school, um, uh, Noel started a zine called uh, Bunny Hop. Okay, I think it was Bunny Hop, or I think it was called Waffle. Actually, the first zine he started ah, was one nice. called Waffle. And so for his zine, I interviewed. We were trying to interview the Red Hot Chili Peppers because we were really into the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and uh, we ended up calling the management company to ask for an interview. And we hustled the receptionist into patching us in with Chad Smith on the phone. Uh-huh. <laughs> and so, and he had just joined the band, and and they they, they so were, this is like their sec- first or second album, maybe or no, this is like because before this is like their their mother's milk, yeah, right. So this was like I think that was their fourth album, yeah. 
but it was their new first one with a new band, right? With Frusciani right. and Chad Smith. And I remember he, so she put us in on the phone with Chad Smith, and suddenly I'm interviewing Chad Smith. <laughs> and we we write, I write it up. This is high school. This too. is high school, senior yeah. of high school. So I write it up, and, and we put it out in the zine, and I was just like, oh, this is incredible. And then the Red Hot Chili Peppers came to town. We went to Soundcheck. They let us into Soundcheck. Wow. We ended up meeting Chad Smith. We ended up meeting the rest of the band. John Frusciani got left behind, so we drove him to the hotel. And I was just no like, way. I was like, this is all amazing. And then my and then he did a second version, a second uh, um, issue of Waffle, and I think it was a freshman year in high or a freshman year in college. He went to Santa Cruz, I went to Davis, and and for the second issue, I interviewed Fife from Tribe Called Quest. Wow. So it was a small zine, and it was at a time when like I could get the interview with the second guy, right. but not the top top tier, right, right? Right, right. And then I think the third one I did that year was with with uh, Mr. Bungle. Wow. And, and so it started becoming a thing, and I and I started. Instead of just doing the Q and A transcript, I started writing a little intro and then the Q and A transcript. Yeah, yeah. And I realized two things. I realized one, I really enjoyed interviewing artists and talking to them, and then two is I really loved seeing my name in print <laughs> and yeah. and saying I did that. Yeah, I right? mean it's empowering. It's um, very fulfilling. Yeah, you know? and it's it's not you know there's a lot of steps to get to that point too. So yeah, and it was weird. Like it just made me feel fulfilled in a way that school didn't. Right. 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 So so that's sort of like. The interviewing part started in high school with this little crew. When I got to Davis, my freshman year, I, I loved college radio. I used to intern. I, I, I had interned one semester at KFJC. KFJC Where is that? Uh, Los Altos Hills. Oh, interesting. 89.3 KFJC, Los Altos Hills. Um, for a semester when I was in high school, I listened to KZSU and Stanford all the time. Right. When I got to Davis, the first thing I did was went to the college radio station and... So I'm obsessed with music. I go to the college radio station, um, really, in, really getting into hip hop uh, in a way like in high school, like Public Enemy, right? Obviously, of course, um, everyone like that. I got into BDP a little bit, and then when I got to freshman year at, at, at Davis, uh, listened to college radio, and I heard this show by DJ Zen Jeff Chang. Yeah, and, wow. and, and him and another woman who went by the name Voodoo Child, they did the two hip hop shows. So I start, I started hanging out at the station. With with Jeff's show, he would let me hang out there. Oh, cool, man! And and then like a few weeks later, um, you, I, was, I saw this white guy digging through the record stacks, and uh, at I met the station him at the station yeah. at Jeff at Jeff's show, and mm. that was uh, Josh Davis, who yeah. DJ Shadow. Um, so I started to so I, so we became friendly a little bit, and then these two other guys came. Uh, this guy Xavier. And then this guy Tom Shimura, who's like the weirdest guy I'd ever see. He 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 was a total bay guy. He was like a a Japanese hip hop kid, um, <laughs> baggy jeans and like and 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 super funny and super charismatic. Right. And, and we all just sort of met each other at Jeff's show. And oh wow! And they were they were Tom was a rapper and Xavier was a DJ and Shadow was a DJ and and we weren't. Everyone was very the the KDVS at Davis. They're their radio station was a very sort of special place, even amongst college radio stations. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They had this incredible music library, and and also it was a five thousand watt college radio station yeah. in Central California, so it broadcast five thousand watts is a lot. Yeah. So it 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 broadcast through a very very wide geography uh, radius. Could you get it? You can get it as far as Berkeley or Oakland, though, right? Like, On clear days and clear nights, you you could get it dope. like in Vallejo. Dope, dope. And, and very clearly, most nights, you could get it as far as Reno and Tahoe. Wow. Yeah, and yeah. so... And absolutely Sacramento. And right? Absolutely Sacramento. And so, so we would hang out at Jeff's show every week, 
and he was very friendly and he was very sort of mentory even even at that stage he had graduated already from college but oh, he nice. lived in sacramento and so he did this show on, on at davis and um and we we would all like so me josh xavier tom we would all sort of like see each other and recognize each other and say what's up but then we would all like they, the three of them would go pull their records from the stacks and go into the listening rooms and not share what they were listening to. <laughs> like they're very sort of like that beat digger mentality right. of like of like secretive. But at some point, it was going. It went on for like like nine months, eight months, or nine months. And so then we became sort of friendly. And we started All converging at the show. At the show, yeah. and so we started just hanging out and started talking about stuff. And I, I'm not a musician. I had no aspirations to be a rapper or a DJ, but but Xavier did, and he's like, I have this friend who's a rapper. His name is Gifted Gab. We have a little group called Blacklicious. Tom at that time went by the name Asia Born, um, That's right, right. and Shadow, who lived in Davis and and went to college there, uh, went by Shadow, and and so we just decided. I think it was Jeff who was like, Listen, like we should start a label and put some stuff out. Oh wow! By that time. I had interned at the radio station, and I and I and I got a show. Okay. So, sophomore year of college, I had my own show, and Jeff had stopped his show. So we, so I basically took the mantle from him and and and, and did the weekly hip hop show. Did you take his same time slot? No, because you kind of got to earn it. Right. So your first slot when you have your first show, and they were very very strict over there, was like you had to do the the three to six a.m. shift. Oh, so shit. I, I did that for a semester, and then I did midnight to three. And I realized midnight to three, which went, Jeff's show was I think Wednesdays midnight to three. That was the the hip hip hop slot. Right, people you, knew it for that. Yeah, too, you right? didn't want a show from nine to midnight. You wanted right. the midnight to three slot. So I, that's that's a slot I occupied for for most of my time there. Um, a couple other people did shows in our crew, and but but then we our I think it was like nineteen ninety one. My sophomore year was like when we started talking about like we should put out a record. Like Josh at that time was doing mixes for KML. Um, and he was DJing a lot, and he his best friend was a guy named Stan, uh, who went by the name Eighth Wonder, who did all the artwork. Mm-hmm. Tom was a rapper on his own. X was you know he was DJing and making beats, and, and very much in the like I think Pete Rock was like his like hero, right? Like it was very right. much in that mold, right? And we just we formed a little crew, and we put out this record, and, and we called ourselves Soul Sides. And the reason we called ourselves Soul Sides is because the first twelve inch we put out was going to be Shadow on one side and Asia Born on the other side. Right, right. And, and I don't know who came up with the name, but we're like, we should, that's what the label should be called, Soul Sides. And each record we put out will be one of our artists on one side, the other on the other right, side. Right, right. And, so, um, and so that's when we, we formed it in 91. And me and Jeff are the only two people who weren't musicians, and everybody else was a musician. So were you guys like the de facto A&Rs or something? Or, or like would you coordinate the manufacturing and also what we did was so we we decided to put out this record and 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 jeff did a lot of the heavy lifting because he was in the in the music industry from a college level he did the cmj reports and he knew all these people right right um and then i think you know the gavin convention was really big then sure so like we went i went to my first gavin convention in 1991 incredible and it was like I, i remember you know going meeting Run DMC and LL Cool J they were just posted up at the bar at this one Shut show up. right and it's like Jeff went up to them and was like hey what's up blah 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 this is this is our crew we, we, we're from Davis and blah 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 and like I've got like you know promo record guys for the first time and you know they would bring us into shows I met Dan Charnas Dan, I think Dan actually was the, the one who introduced me to Run DMC and LL Cool J 
And I remember meeting Dan Charnis then, and we went out after one of these shows. We went out to go get cheesesteaks in North Beach uh-huh. and talked till like two in the morning. And, and he was at Deaf American at the time, right? Right. And 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 I remember just he was he was the coolest. He was cool as shit. Like he was just so fucking nice, right? And um, he's an incredible writer. I mean, his book is incredible. yeah. And awesome. I did, it's funny because like I saw him recently, and um, and we hadn't seen each other in a long time. But like he's he's just one of the he's a decent, great human being. But that was when I met him. It was the '91 Gavin Convention, and and it was just like there. I think there was a fight in the lobby mm-hmm. of one of the hotels, and so it was just like it was just this energy around it. And, it was exciting. Uh, it was very exciting. It's it was, also like the 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 golden era of college radio too, for the most part. It's getting there. Yeah, you know? especially with hip hop, right? Yeah. So like hip hop. Yeah, that's where my frame yeah. of reference. I mean, hip hop as an industry thrived on college radio and community radio. Like yeah, that's absolutely. that's the only. Those are the only stations playing real hip hop. Right at the time, and so we 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 got so very quickly as I had my show and started reporting when I played on my show and getting records sent to me. I very quickly we it was you realize you're a part of a community, yeah, and and that was really important for me because I didn't know up from down, right? As sure. I was just I was a fucking kid who I didn't you know I I grew up in the suburbs as an as a first generation Indian. You know, first born, first generation born in this country. Yeah, yeah. I I just didn't know up from down, and 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 one Jeff is very political and very very fucking smart. So he he was very early on taught me that hip hop was it wasn't just a music to be into. It was really music that came from a community, and mm-hmm. I had to respect that. Right, and, and that's I, really in, in the Bay. That's I think it really has always been pretty prevalent, right? Yeah, it's, you can't be a knucklehead in the Bay. You can't right. get away with not understanding privilege and not understanding where the music comes from right you're you're you know when i was in high school too short i I used to listen to too short tapes right like and used to listen to kmel on friday nights and they would do hip-hop mixes and you know and hearing people on the radio and shouting out communities all around the bay like yeah you're very much forced to, to to understand that and jeff was really instrumental very early on to be like like this is you're a visitor, but and you're part, but you're also part of it, right, right? Right. You have to respect those boundaries. So he was a bit of a mentor. He right? he was a not a bit of he was he was my first mentor, mm, and amazing. and he was a mentor for all of us, I think. Um, but yeah, so while that's happening with Soul Sides and at the radio station, and I ended up becoming like program director or music director, I became the hip hop director at KDVS, and then I became the music director for two years. Nice, right. and and that was my lane. Like I could, I I, I ran that shop at K, at KDVS, right. right? And 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 Jeff left there, and he was working, but we were still we were doing Soul Sides, and we I think we had, we put together like seven hundred fifty dollars to open up a bank account, and I still have that checkbook. Ah, like I think right. I put in like two fifty, and two other people put in two fifty, and um and we were just we put out this record and um and shadow was getting a name for himself and um and had Tom, he already he had already done the hollywood basic he had, thing he while we were sort of before we put out the our first release while we were for, being a crew like basically hanging out with each other yeah. that's when he started doing the the hollywood hollywood basic stuff and that's I met Funkin' Klein right the next Incredible. year at the Gavin right yeah. when he was in a wheelchair and I, and but he was just this, and Funkin' Klein used to talk so much shit he was just like he's like where's that white motherfucker Josh Josh come <laughs> in. You know, he was just such a shit talker and and so I got to know this the the people and then the, and subsequently you got to know the other people who were doing college radio around the bay 
right, and right, right. people like Benny B, right. uh, Kevin Kev in Santa in St- at Stanford, um, you know, the people down in Santa Cruz. So, for, so it was a lot of great stations. A lot of great stations. Um, Davey D was it was a it was a I think Cal- Calix and or, yeah, I think or, so. No, Benny yeah. was at Calix. I think Davey D was at Capu. Billy Jam, um, Billy Jam, of course. Um, and so we started. You know, we would see each other at shows all the time. We started it started feeling like community. Like I yeah, felt cool. attached to something, not just at Davis, but then in the Bay and then and then nationally. When you know a publicist would come in with an artist and want to come by the station, and you're just like, oh shit! Like I know someone in New York now, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, and so while all that was happening, I was also I started to 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 write more, and and um, and a couple of hip hop zines popped up uh, in the Bay. Um, one in particular was was the bomb hip hop magazine. Yes, which I'd like to show you some. Sure, if I can. Yeah, and and so my first piece, I pitched Dave Paul. I was I was like, can I do some interviews for you? I sent him my clips from these zines, and he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah cool. And I, and how'd you send them? Did you fax them over? Did you put them in the mail? Because this is if it's ninety two, ninety three, and can't really. I know. Email I think yet. I I really do think I faxed them to him. Um, the fax was an incredible tool, especially if you're u- utilizing the radio station's fax machine. Exactly. You're utilizing the radio station's computer and fax machine. Right. And, um, and so the bomb started, and I wrote for the bomb. And then other regional zines are starting. Flavor up in Seattle. Yeah. Um, One Nut Network up in Connecticut, I think. Yeah, I got a bunch of those around the floor in the other room. Yeah, and then DJ Steph was doing Vinyl Exchange. Yes. So it was like... Um, you know, I started writing for 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 little indie hip hop zines, and right. then I started writing for like you know in, uh, weekly trade. Uh, sorry, uh, alt weeklies in the Bay. Oh, nice, and, really. And then I started really simultaneous to that in school. Uh, I I went in. I was doing an econ major, but then I started uh, taking English classes and really started writing, loving to write. Nice. Yeah. So, because what did you go to school for, and what was your intention as far as like? I was undeclared when I went in, and uh, I was originally going to try to do chemistry, but I oh, wow. I took a took a year of chemistry and I hated it, right. and so I switched to econ, which I loved, and then and then I started as I was doing more interviews and writing, I was like, I got to get better at this, and then I was taking English classes and really loving writing about literature, and and I sort of put it all together. It right. all sort of hit my sophomore junior year of college. And that's when I started taking writing seriously, and um, and I, and my DJ name was Jasbo, and so I started writing under Jasbo because I thought that's what you do in the hip hop magazines, right? Uh-huh, you take right. Out, you, you, you. So um, well, that's the first, you know, the first time I ever heard that word too was when Black Alicious shouted it out in the yeah in the, on, the Swan Lake, yeah. on Swan Lake, yeah, 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 which is a huge, really their first huge record. I feel like yeah, it was the first Maybe first out, there was their first release, really. yeah, so, yeah, which I think I. I don't know if this is it or not. This isn't that, Swan Lake. This is oh, it is Swan Lake. Yeah, that's Lyric Swan Lake. Yeah, that's yeah. the second record we put out. So I actually brought something for you. Is that right? I brought you. Pocket. So Soulside's first release, SS001, the Shadow on one side and Lyrics Lyrics Born, but at the time Asia Born on the right. other. While we were waiting for our twelve inches to press, we we made some cassettes. We made two hundred cassettes, and um, and they arrived before our vinyl did. Yeah. And so this was technically the first release we ever had. Wow. And so we started giving them away, um, but when the vinyl came in, we Incredible. we put the we put the cassettes on a shelf and and they sat in my closet for years. Really. Um. We I think we only gave like fifty away. Um. 
uh, because when the twelve inches came in, we started giving those away and started right. selling those. So I have this. I have all the cassettes. So that is my gift to you. Oh man, thank you it's, so much. Is, at some point in, in my head, I thought they'd be worth a lot of money, but they're now more just sentimental, historical. Yeah, and we were talking about artifacts. that too before we started recording too. I mean, this is this you can't even put a price on what it took to kind of get to this point too. As the first one and yeah, and Eighth Wonder did the. Uh, the classic kind of hip hop. Yeah, yeah. He must. Have, I wonder. If, did he ever do any covers for the bomb? Because of that, that I feel stylistically. Like, yeah, I don't know. Actually, I feel like he might have. He did. I know he did some artwork for uh, Deaf Deaf American. Oh, cool. Like he did. He did a couple. Like, did you hook that of, up? No, I think. I mean, Stan was great. I think when we met Dan Charnis, Dan, we Dan started to hear about what we were doing up in Davis, and so he knew about Josh, and then. I think he he had he hit up Stan to do uh, artwork. I think it was for Quest the Mad Lad, yeah, and then somebody else that they had on that label at the same time. But he it wasn't Chino XL. That was maybe a little later. No, it might have been. What was it? Was I don't think it was Chino. It was definitely Quest the Mad Lad and it was somebody else. But he did the interior label artwork for the for oh, the artist. But Stan then dropped out of our crew. Okay. I don't know the story, so I shouldn't really speak on it. But yeah, it's all good. yeah, he ended up dropping out of our crew. He didn't. He, I think he had a lot of pressure from his parents, a lot of pressure from uh, religion. Oh, to do something else. To, to not be involved with this hip hop thing. Oh, interesting. So, yeah. yeah. Hmm. But so you know, another era, kind of uh, the pressures of another era. Yeah, another. and parents, and sure. you know, I think. So yeah, so that that four years I was like. Davis was a real it was like I was writing for local hip hop magazines I was um, getting better at writing and wanting to get better at my craft I was DJing on the on the air uh, we were doing this label Soul Sides yeah. it just was like it was like that's what I wanted to do yeah and, it's that's pretty exciting too because I mean you're you know just in the middle of college you know giving, I mean you're still basically Teenager, early maybe early yeah. twenty, barely twenty, or something. So, and, and growing up in the suburbs, you don't. I mean, a twenty twenty one year old and a twenty year old in a, in D- at Davis, California, is not the same as a twenty year old who grew up in New York. <laughs> yeah, I just, seriously, like, I just did not know the world. But um, so ninety two ninety three, Jeff was writing for Herb magazine, and, and I was reading Herb, and we were getting written about in Herb, and I started to meet those those people through Jeff, like Brian Cross. Yeah, um, B plus. Yeah. Tra- yeah, B plus. Tracy McGregor, uh, Todd Roberts, uh, Raymond Roker, and I thought my writing was good enough in these regional zines like Bomb and Flavor to hit up Herb, and so the first thing I wrote for Herb was a, uh, I think it was a, f- a feature on a Tribe Called Quest. Really? Yeah, and uh, and it was like, wow, like man, that was just like the fucking best thing in the world. Yeah, and you know, and I don't want to backtrack too far, but. This issue of Bomb from November of 1993, issue 24, yeah. this is actually your interview with a Trap Called right, Quest right. in this, which is pretty hilarious. I mean, uh, oh, uh, you know, if you, if you even if you just kind of, I don't know if you remember this exchange, but it, obviously Q-Tip maybe was not perhaps uh, that into uh, talking that day. Cause yeah. It's like very short answers, and it's, it's pretty hilarious because you... This is the style of journalism that I love too. Coming up as well, where it's the, you interject enough of your personality, where it's not it's it's like it creates a great um, texture to the story, but it's not like it's not overbearing, which I find some writing of today's contemporary writing to be a little overbearing with the writers. Yeah, it's about as much about the writer's personality. Yeah, and their 
philosophy. Than, yeah. yeah, this is like you actually showing some, you know, desperately trying to get <laughs> him to talk about the record, which this is from when Midnight Marauders came yeah. out, which is arguably one of, you know, their greatest works by far. Yeah, yeah. it's funny because so I at somewhere between ninety two and ninety three, I realized that. If I, because for me it was only about the music. Right. Like what I what I remember is when we got Low End Theory into the KDVS. I remember we got it the week before it was released in stores, and I remember we we they would send us multiple copies, and I remember taking a CD home and listening to it all night, and just like oh my god. Um. So the radio station would get service with records when around release date. Right. What I realized from writing is I would get records in advance. Three, yeah. or three or four months in advance. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so I was like, wow. So, um, and then I realized somewhere in 93, and I think Midnight Marauders was the first one where if I write the, if I, if I, I got hit up to write a bio, and I said, if I write the bio, I get it even before any of the writers get it. I'm the first one that gets it. Right. Outside that's of what the they're label. going off of, too. So I, I got asked to write the bio for Midnight Marauders. Wow. And so I got the cassette for Midnight Marauders. At the end of my sophomore year or co- junior year of college, okay. and I and I spent the entire summer. I interned. I taught summer school that summer, and I also interned at the San Francisco DA's office. Hmm. And I was living at home for the summer with my parents, so it was a forty-five minute hour-long commute each way right. every day for five five days a week. And I would listen to Midnight Marauders front to back over and over again that whole summer. Wow! And I and and when I got advances. From my writing career, I would play previews on my radio show. Wow! So my okay. show was like, like I, I made it work for me. Like people who listen to my show would hear shit that they wouldn't even hear on the big shows in the Bay because I was a writer. I was getting these advanced cassettes, yeah. and I'd put, mix them into my things, and I'd be like, "Oh, we got the new tribe. I'm gonna yeah. play a little bit." <laughs> and, and 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 nobody in New York at Dry Records is gonna hear my show to know that I was like. Playing right, this shit right. before. It's just enough off the radar, yeah. but the people in the bay in the could bay, really yeah. get it, you know. Like, so I had a little racket going with that. But I remember with I would do one interview with the with an artist and then parcel out different pieces for it. Okay. Um, I'd do a little bit for I'd do one thing for the bomb. I'd do an album review for I think I did the, an album review for Herb uh, or I think the Source maybe like mm-hmm. that might have been my first thing for the Source. Um, but yeah, it was it was like a. And then I realized you can't do that. That's not really kosher. What? Write the bio and write some... Write, write. the bio, do one interview, and then parcel out a, a, a story out of it for a magazine. Right. Like, again, I think the industry itself was finding its footing, so there weren't really any rules. Right, But right. at some point, it started to develop a little ethics, and so you started to realize, <laughs> hey, this doesn't feel right. Sure. Um, and then as I started sending my clips to bigger magazines, they would be like, no, you, we want you to just do this for us. You're, right, you're right. interviewing them under our banner. You can't use that for something else. Right, right. Herb, I think, was the first magazine that really explained to me. And that, this is first, that was the first place I wrote for that felt like I was writing for a real magazine. Yeah. Um, and then I remember get, sending my Herb clips to the source, and they would give me little things to do. They always wanted me to interview, like review E40 albums or two short albums. Because oh, I was the from, the Bay, from the Bay, right? Right. And I was like, that's not what I want to do. I right. love New York shit. Um, so Herb, Herb was a pretty unique magazine for its time, too, I feel like. Um, yeah. Because it embodied multiple genres. It was like the, you know, there's so many strictly hip-hop magazines. And if you were yet to get to the point of, say, writing for like a Rolling Stone or Spin, 
which only you know also didn't really cover a ton of hip hop stuff. You know, if I'm if I'm remembering right, yeah. You know, I mean they they covered, Spin was the magazine at the time that covered like the right. like integrated hip hop into this sort of like alternative music mentality. Right, right. Um, I think Legs McNeil and Charles Aaron and people like that were Charles writing for Spin. But like, yeah, Herb was. So the reality was that I. I loved music. I loved right. hip hop, right. but I wasn't only listening to hip hop. Like when I would fill in other people's radio shows in at Davis at KDBS, I would do a jazz show, oh, cool. or okay. I'd do like an indie rock show. Like I loved music, right. and Herb was the first magazine that articulated that people loved music, not just a genre. Right, that right. dance music came from the same place that hip hop came from. That came from the same place that jazz came from. That right. came from the same place. As you know, and, and Herb was really founded out of rave culture. Absolutely. So it had more ravey leanings than hip hop leanings, but it was the first genreless magazine in a way. Mm, um, yeah. They would put a, a, a producer, a, a dance producer uh, on the cover, just like they would put a hip hop group on the cover. Right. So that was really fun for me. And it was run like a real magazine. Like it was, and it was beautiful f- photography yeah. in a way that like Bomb wasn't, right? It was Bomb is yeah. running press photos, whereas Herb Magazine was hiring photographers to, 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 yeah. to shoot artists specifically for them. Yeah. And they had, yeah, they had an aesthetic that was really, it was, and it was very LA. It was very well designed. Yeah, and and so I was obsessed. One of my first obsessions, obviously from the Bay, was was the stuff coming out from the Bay, like Souls of Mischief and yeah. Dell. But then I was also obsessed with all the Freestyle Fellowship, Lemert Park, Good Life Cafe stuff. Of course. So I was writing a lot about that in in Herb, in Bomb, in other magazines, trying to spread the gospel of Freestyle Fellowship. Yeah, and Herb. Even though I wasn't from L.A., they let me write about it because I, I think they liked how I wrote, wrote mm-hmm. about it. Um, and I would write something about the fellowship and, you know, B-plus's photo would accompany my story. And I'd just be like, oh, my God, this is incredible. Right. Yeah. And, and you know, he, he was the first photographer that I obsessed over because I realized, oh, the way I'm writing, he's taking photos. And his photos were incredible. Like, he's Absolutely. a... He's a and it made me want to write better because of that. Like as I right. as I as I started writing for new places, I was like, I gotta get better and better. I would read the source, and the source at the time was like James Bernard and, and those guys, Cheo Coker, and they were right. incredible writers. And I yes. was like, Holy shit! Like, if I want to do this, I have to like really find my lane and really t- work on my craft of writing. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. The source was at its best during that time. Yeah, you yeah. Know, really incredible writers that I think, yeah. It's funny too when you go back to like the you know I was thinking about this when you were sort of explaining Jeff uh, at the radio station and and how you sort of followed him and and sort of in a way the that college and nonprofit or community radio uh, stations of that time yeah. the people that the, especially the hip hop programmers to a, to a large degree um, the way they would utilize that would they would be the makings of the of the next wave of, of the music industry as far as like working at labels and, and coordinating albums and you know clearly which is what happened yeah. with Soul Sides yeah but I think that was mirrored almost at the exact same time with with magazines with, with print journalism too and again I'm speaking kind of specifically to hip hop but well um, hip hop journalism became a thing yeah right like in the early nineties that's it was it was creating its own hip-hop was not being covered by the big magazines so they started their own right and they started it regionally and then they started it nationally with magazines like the source and uh rap pages and that was thrilling because you were a part of something new and something that 
that everyone in hip hop read the source. Yeah. And so I, 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 f- I started obsessing over the writers and editors whose bylines I was reading as much as I was obsessing over the artists that they covered. Mm-hmm. And, 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 with magazines like Rap Pages and Herb, I was obsessing over the photographers and the designers. Yeah. And it was just like, you know, when you're young and sort of like learning about the world still and you're a part of something and you're you're right up in it, it's really, really thrilling. Yeah. And and, and that time period, I, I don't think will um, be replicated in the same way. I think it's happening. I think it happened in the early 2000s with music blogs. I think if you mm-hmm. were a music blogger in the early 2000s yeah. and you were breaking artists through your blog that was probably very similar a thrilling thing to be a part of and I think now it's happening with a lot of people who are you know who are transitioning from like hip hop journalism into like TV film scriptwriters or showrunners exactly I think think we're we're on the the cusp of a big explosion of hip hop related content from people who grew up in that era sure and are almost doing the same thing now in a different industry well you look at luke cage that's a good example of that, right? and luke cage and uh carlito rodriguez who's writing for empire i think oh Sel- cool i didn't know Sel- that. selwyn hines just sold a show to hbo that they're looking at to be their next game of thrones interesting um, okay. you know you've got people like chris x who's uh, a dear friend and a and a, and a you know, longtime journalist himself. Who's, yeah. who's, who's doing script writing right now? And you guys shared many pages in these magazines. And, yeah, you know. and that's the other, so that's the other thing that was cool is like, I would go to different cities and meet people based on my writing. And, yeah, and based on soul sides and you know you share bylines with people and you 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 meet them and it's just like there's this like brotherhood right a, a camaraderie that happens. I will never forget. I moved to New York in '99. Okay. And my first week in New York, I went to. I was going to see two shows. One was Mike Ladd mm-hmm. at SOBs, I think, and the other, I, or I forget what the second show was. But I'm at SOBs, and I there's a tap on my shoulder, and I'm, I've been in New York like five days, right? There's a tap on my shoulder, and it's this like big Jesusy looking dude, and he's like, "Are you Jasbo? Are you Joseph Patel?" And I was like, "Yeah." He's like, "I'm John Garmonica," <laughs> and I was like, "Oh shit!" I was like, and I knew his byline, and 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 we ended up hanging out. That he was going to the same two shows I was going out. I was like, and I was like, "How did you know who I was?" He's like, "I, you know, just know." And I was like, "That's yeah. crazy." <laughs> and we ended up becoming like best friends off that. Like it just was cool. And Hwasu, same thing. Dave Tompkins, Dave and I actually met because he was one of the first people. Uh, he was writing from the same magazines I was at the same time, right, right. and he was also one of the first people that like wrote about Soul Sides. Yeah, and so me and him, I was I was collecting like unreleased stuff and demos and all this LA underground stuff, and I would send it to him, and he was Dave Tompkins doing Dave Tompkins things, <laughs> and so he would send me mixtapes, and we were we would. What turn, was he sending you? He was sending me like you know like unreleased Mantronics stuff, or yeah. like oh you know like when we started getting into like really trippy music like tortoise and all that stuff and like he we would send you know just music to each other but my mixtapes are very clean and very like this song and this song this is the title this is the artist this is the title very clean (laughs) and his was he would write a story on the cover and and it was nonsensical but really sensical like like really made sense but like in a very weird dave tompkins way and he'd write some like He'd, he'd always write the artist and then the song title and then some impression of the song that he had, it, what it reminded him of. Hmm. And, and he'd insert that in the tape in a separate piece of paper. And, like, 
I think we would trade tapes like that, and like I have all these Dave Tompkins like mixtapes from wow. the nineties that that are their experiences more than their their just tapes. Like, well, reading him is an experience. Oh man, too. he's yeah. an incredible, yeah. incredible writer. Yeah. He told me I asked him ahead of us meeting up how you guys met. Oh yeah. And uh, initially, I think the way he explained it to me was in like nineteen ninety four. Uh, he called you because uh, so you. By way of just what you were doing back, the soul says you were possibly what you the de facto publicist or something like that. Yeah, or? sort of like um, publicist, record promoter, right? Yeah. Like I was like calling my cohorts at other radio stations to play the record, and we'd send it to them. So yeah. it was sort of like that. And then again, it was for me. It was just trying to find a lane, like mm-hmm. not not being like me and Jeff not be, being the only two non musicians, but Jeff was also like our our you know our father. Yeah. He was he was the ringleader. Like we we learned so much from him and he was really taking our cues from him. So for me to find my lane, I was just excited to be a part of this. And 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 was doing whatever I could, right? right? Like I would take the notes during the meetings. I would make sure to follow up on the stuff that we decided we were going to do. Were you in the studio with them? Sometimes, but not a lot. We but the studio the studio actually we recorded a lot. Of, Josh would record a lot of stuff at his house. But we did a lot of the mixing at Dan the Automators uh-huh. in South San Francisco. Yeah. So we would have to drive from Davis there. That's a haul. And and we all would go together. Wow. And and I remember when a year after we started Soul Sides, uh, Latif landed on campus. Yeah. And he he's just a different cat. Like Latif is just he's a, he's an incredible human being. He fell in with us right away because he just. He told me that you basically connect. You brought him in. I mean, he was hanging around the radio station, uh-huh. uh, and I was just like, "Who are you? Like, you're, you're definitely from the Bay. Uh-huh. You got, you got, you're sort of like, you know, caramel skinned dreadlocks. You rap. Like, come <laughs> hang out with our crew. Yeah. And then we all fell in really, really easily. And. But what's funny is we were recording, I think Blacklisters was recording and mixing at Automator's house, and Shadow was doing his finishing touches at Automator's, and Automator was helping him because he had the experience. Right. And we showed up to Automator's house, and while they were do- working in the studio, we would just, the, those of us who weren't working on it would just sit in the basement watching TV or listening mm-hmm. to the radio. We brought Latif once, and Dan looked at Latif and was just like, and Dan was the weirdest dude then. Mm-hmm. And he lived at his, it was his parents' house, uh-huh. <laughs> and his mom would like come down screaming at him sometimes, and he'd yell back at her. And we're just like, where the fuck are we? We showed up with Latif for the first time, and Dan took one look at Latif and was like, nope, he can't come in here. I don't, I don't want him in here. And, if, and, and we're like, well, if he can't come, then we're not coming. He's like, well, then don't come. Wow. So Latif had to go like sit in the car for the first night that we brought him. Dan did not like him at all, and I never understood why. And then, and then finally, he got used to us bringing Latif around, and he finally wow. gave in. But, but yeah. And then the other thing that was funny about our crew then was we could never go to a show unless all of us could get in. Mm. Like so, if Dayla's playing in Oakland, we would all have to be able to get in. And so that fell on me to hit up the publicist or the record promo people oh, to, to get, get on, on the list. list. Right. I need to get on the list plus. Four. Right. And Jeff would call. He's like, I need to get on those plus four. And we would get to the door, and sometimes they'd be like, well, I'm not letting eight people in. And we're <laughs> like, well, and I remember Xavier and Tom were like, well, if we can't all get in, then we're not, none of us can go in. And I was like, that's nuts. I just <laughs> drove an hour into the bay to watch Dela. Like, I'm not going to not see Dela. Right. You guys can get your way in, or you can pay to get in. But, like, 
that's some Bay Area like solidarity, like punk rock <laughs> thing for yeah. sure. And then the other thing that was happening that I want to shout out at the time was that all of the college radio DJs in the Bay, we formed a coalition called the Bay Area Hip Hop Coalition. Oh, yeah. Wow. And that was really yeah, Benny B's doing, I think. Uh-huh, and uh-huh. the reason we did that was because he's like, look, like we, we, we're a region that has power. We have a lot of stations here and we have a lot of reach. Right. And if we form this coalition to report records in, in sync with each other and, and then we wield some power um, to have artists come visit us and to do drops and things like that. And that was mm-hmm. really my first time being exposed to like community building like that. Right. And, and really like, you know, like it, it comes from, you know, roots and labor unions and things like that yeah. and community organizing. And like, and it, it was really fun because it was like, that's how I got to know all the DJs at all the other stations. We'd have these, these like monthly meetings and, um, and you know, and it worked. Like we would, we started getting artists coming to Davis to visit our station, you so. know, and like Master Ace coming by, you know, and um, big. you know, it was cool. Like it was cool. How did you meet, or when did you meet, if you can recall, uh, DJ Steph? Yeah. Um, so Steph. So after I graduated from Davis, I was still writing, and we we're still doing Soul Sides. Although I sort of was getting a lot of pressure from my parents to find a real job. Sure. They, they had no interest in me doing this label thing. And it really actually caused my falling out with SoulSides. I had to leave SoulSides. Or I either got kicked out or I left on my own. I think it was both. <laughs> um, yeah, okay. Because I, just, I, was, I was interning and, and trying to work, and my parents were just like, I just didn't have the time to, to put into SoulSides, right. especially if I wasn't making any money off it. Sure. Right? You can only do that for so long. Yeah, right. and it was just like we – we we weren't making money as a label and and so i had to find a real job and and i wasn't able to hold my end of uh of being a part of that crew so we mutually parted ways in like 95 96 so this is like the moax thing even happened at this yeah the point? moax thing happened okay. at that point and and when that was the first thing where i was like i was like wait why are we why is shadow going to put out an album on moax and it's not going to be through soul sides right and that was really puzzling to me i was like but why aren't we getting any money off this? And and, and mm. I didn't understand. And I was like, if SoulSides is just going to be a label where you put out your records when you feel like it, then that's probably not a future for me. Right, right. And, I can understand that. And so I really had to, it was a tough thing. And, and I think, but we all thought it was sort of best. Like, I'm going to, we'll, we're all still cool. And then, but I'm just, I got to go find a real job and do 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 that. So with SoulSides off my plate, I started really writing a lot. Um but I was still a part of the Bay community, and and Steph was someone I met because she would what she started doing is when an artist would come to town, she would start hosting the meet and greets, and mm. so she invited me to the meet and greets to meet company flows in town, like art and, and artists I'd never heard of, right. and or I just got the record and and didn't know anything about. She was really instrumental, and in, and in, in, and it wasn't just for radio DJs; it was like for people like myself who didn't have a show anymore but was writing about music right, right. and so she was like one of the first people that made me feel post soul sides that i was still part of this community and i still had um still had value and still you know i was writing for vinyl exchange and she was we would talk every now and then uh, about what i was listening to um but she'd organize these like meet and greets two or three times a month and i would i would go to those and and she was just the sweetest yeah. nicest person and whether you, whether I was writing for magazines or whether you were just starting out on college radio, like she just treated everyone the same. If you were yeah. cool, you were cool. Yeah, and great connector. You know? Great connector, and just like a fucking incredible human being. Yeah, like just cool, you know, and nice and sweet and genuine. And you never thought it was a front, right, or right. political. And you just 
every time you interacted with Steph, it just like from then, from the time I met her in like ninety five, ninety six, to like the last time I talked to her, uh, like six or seven months ago on on Twitter, mm-hmm. like she just was like you left that interaction in a better place. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's. I mean, in even briefly, like I feel like she was such a great kind of representation of the Bay in a lot of ways yeah. because. Like when we did the tribute show for her, yeah. it was such a range genre, like you know, micro genres right. of hip hop yeah. that otherwise wouldn't really associate yeah. with each other. Or young, old, multicultural, yeah. male, female, people who did graph and people who DJed and right. bar owners and, and and bartenders and like it was yeah. just like that was stuff. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's cool. Just and, and you know, you're part of that world. Although I think with the writing too you reached a lot of people outside of the bay so it's yeah. like uh that's what always sort of intrigued me about your history i mean i really know you f- not only from the blackalicious record but really from the byline and herb yeah which yeah so many great writers kind of not necessarily started but they kind of in some ways started you know coming into their own stylistically yeah. as far as journalists i mean with yourself and and Hua and Dave Tompkins yeah. and Oliver Wang, who really put... He's the one who put me on, so I came yeah. a couple... I started writing at Herb maybe in 95 or 6, around yeah. that time. And it was really because of him and through, like, the those primitive um, online news groups, rec.music.hiphop. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Because he would post his playlist from Calix yeah. yeah. from Berkeley. And I, I was doing college radio when I was in high school, and I would do the same. And yeah. then it was like an exchange of ideas and shit. So he got on as like the 12 inch editor at Herb or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And started pulling people from the news group, just a few. Yeah. And um, it was that era of like, you know, the, the indie boom of 95, 6, and so on, as far as the 12 inches goes. Yeah, and it was, too, it was, I think it was an important thing that, you know, to like, when blogs are really big, it's like people would write their own blogs and 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 become writers and find their voice that way. But right. there there was a there's there's something about writing for a publication and feeling a part of a community that um, that I will always appreciate about that time. Because right. I don't I wouldn't know Oliver or Dave Tompkins or Hua or John Caramonica or anybody like that if it wasn't for those days writing yeah. for Herb, right? And I would take my clips in Herb that looked great, and I would then use those to, to write for places like The Source, Vibe, Rap Pages, and whatever. Yeah, I'd level up from level there. Level up from there. And, and one of my first, you know, my the next notch in my sort of um, evolution was when I got to write my first cover story for Rap Pages. What was that on? It was on The Roots. Nice. 96. Dope. And, uh, and I remember I got flown to Philly. Uh-huh. And uh, that was that was a thrill, right? Getting That's flown nice. to, to a city to, to write. Was that your first time for a writing story that you got? Uh, no, the first time I, I got flown for a story was shortly before that. I, I wrote uh, a piece on a tribe called Quest, and I got flown to New York. Dope. And that was I remember they put me up at the Radisson Empire. Okay, and and I and I and I had never been to New York as an adult, so I was like just intimidated by the fucking city. Even, well, this like, is your first time. In first New York time in New York as an adult, right? And 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 I remember uh, the publicist Theola. Borden, who is I still actually work with in a uh, she's still we're still in the business together we still work Amazing. work with each other but she she came up and she uh, 
she picked me up at my hotel and took me down the West Village and walked me around New York just to introduce me to the city because I didn't know anything and I was so scared to get around. Wow. And I remember she sent Tribe, knowing I didn't know how to, my way around the city, she sent Tribe to my hotel. Oh, shit. So, so Q-Tip and Ali Shaheed Muhammad go to the front desk of reception to ask for me. I come down. We sit in the park across the street, and I did my interview there. And this is before Beats, Rhymes, and Life came out. Wow. And I had heard the album. I had had it for a couple months. And I remember I went back to the hotel after the interview, and the people at the hotel were just, like, jockeying me. They're like, you know Tip and Ali? Right. You know Tribe, blah, blah, blah. And I was just like, oh, my God, this is incredible. Yeah. I mean, um, they're New York celebrities. Yeah. So, you know. I mean, we were sitting right across the street from the bus stop, and the bus would come out, and people would just jump and be like, oh, my God, Q-Tip. Right. Um, and... And so a few months after that, I got flown to Philly to interview The Roots, and it was for Rap Pages. And that's when I became friends with Questlove, because I interviewed them, and then I, Questlove just was like, yeah, let's like, like come hang out. And so I was like hanging out at the house all day oh. for like two days. And the first night I met him, we, we hung out in his room listening to music for six, seven hours, just talking about music. Wow. And he played me something that night. He had just met D'Angelo. And he, he and D'Angelo, when they met, they played for like 14 hours together. Wow. He played me those tapes. He was playing me. Wow. So we're sitting here talking about music, and I'm listening to him and D'Angelo as a two-person band playing hip-hop covers. What? And I was just like, oh, my <laughs> God. We ordered cheesesteaks, and we sat on his doorstep, and, and he called me a car at like 5 in the morning to go back to my hotel. Wow. And I was just like, this is what I want to do with the rest of my life. This is incredible. And I remember writing this root story. And at the time, Dream Hampton was the was the temp, was the editor in chief of the magazine. Uh-huh. I forget someone, whoever was editor in chief before her had left, and she was filling in. And she changed my life as a writer because yeah, I wrote okay. this story. I was such a knucklehead as a writer then. I thought I was like protecting the hip hop realm between what real hip hop was and what fake hip hop was. Right. Well, that I, was the era for that. That was too. the era for that. And I, I didn't see I didn't see the bad boy shit, and I didn't see Jay Z as like real hip hop. Right. I saw it as like commercial hip hop sure. and Jermaine Dupri and all that stuff and I was like holding it down for like Freestyle Fellowship and Farside and Souls of Mischief and The right. Roots right <laughs> uh-huh. and she took uh, my first draft I turned in she called me up and she she just tore into me really and she it's the most in, incredible lesson maybe one of the most valuable lessons I ever learned not only as a writer but just as a as a person um, I was so sure of myself as a writer and that I was representing the real hip hop guard writing about the roots and she's like listen hip-hop is whatever little black kids say it is it's not your job to say what it is it's not your job to protect something it is an evolving art form and culture and it is whatever little black kids say it is if today it's yellow and blue and tomorrow they call it purple and green then hip-hop is purple and green and you have to understand that and and i was just like wow you're right and that changed everything for me yeah wow and then and from that then i turned in a draft of a story that really i think was better because of her editing it made me a better writer Mm -hmm. but it also just opened up this lens for me that was like it changed my life ever since and now that's why like i'm not a crusty old dude right now that's like hating on like soundcloud rappers right because that's what is hip-hop is is that it's what we grew up through and all that's stuff i'll love and and really but i also love everything new right now like right. I, because it's it really is just what little black kids say it is and, that, <laughs> and that's exciting and they find yeah. their own voice and their own style yeah. and their own representation of that based on the times and and that's what hip hop is well in the arc of your career you you've obviously 
been able to navigate as far as a writer and beyond just being a writer because now you've done like it's not as regimented as being a contributor or a columnist or freelancer like it was 25 years ago right 20 years ago but you've been able to keep a consistent level as a career through and and you know, uh, it was funny. I was going through some old tapes because I know I have an interview where I filmed you in really? the year two thousand. Really, and where I think must have been Vice, but I don't know. No, it was three sixty hip hop. Yes, yeah, three sixty hip hop. I remember because I did group wow. home the same day when they were on Replay Records. So oh, man. If that says anything. Um, but yeah, I gotta find it too. Yeah, it was from either ninety nine or two thousand. That was in Chelsea when we worked at Chelsea. I think. Yeah, three sixty yeah. hip hop was like Selwyn, uh, Sheena, Lester. Chris X, me, Caramonica, Jeff Chang. Like, that was a fucking group. Yeah, all-star team. That was an all-star group. Whatever we built was trash, but it was like, yeah, it was the dot-com bubble. Absolutely. Yeah. And a lot of those writers have have created their own lane in different ways. Yeah. And Caramonica's, you know, went the times route. And, uh, you know, Jeff is a, you know, a respected author. But you've been able to kind of navigate from you know one establishment to another which is not that's not an easy task yeah you know yeah at all um so i'm curious about that too just you know because you have to be have a a high level of you know savviness and panache i mean to be able to to you know keep a career you know what i'm saying like yeah and i think i figured it out sooner and faster than some of my peers but your last question for me um so the the thing there's two things i loved three things i loved about about writing as i started to do it for more more and more years um one was i loved the proximity to artists like talking to artists about music they made that i loved and being able to ask ask them about it and how did you make that where did that come from right like that is a fucking drug yeah and you know, being able to talk to Dilla about beats. When so you, you you interviewed him. I, I I did one of the first interviews with Dilla when he um, post Farside pre Slum Village. Wow! And I had I again my hustle was I would write the bio. So, so which I wrote which the bio for Slum Village for the, fantastic. fantastic the first day. Did you? And I'd heard I'd heard about Slum Village through. Q-Tip through Questlove right. through D'Angelo. Right. They were all fucking talking. Common. They were all fucking talking about D- Dilla. And and Slum Village in, in, in particular, and I was just like, okay. So I, I called up A and M, and I was like, I forgot the publicist there. I was like, I want to write the bio. So they they set me up with an interview with with Slum Village. So um, you pursued it, yeah. So I I would like that's how I wanted to I wanted to get it before everyone else did. Yeah, right? I did. Um, <laughs> and then once I wrote the bio, because my name's not on the bio, I would then of course I would then write a story in a magazine about uh, based either partly on my bio interview or set up something new. Yeah, um, right. And it was also a way for me to get work because I would be able to pitch, like, I'll, you know, pitch the source. Hey, I want to write the review for the Slum Village album. They're like, well, it's not out. The, the advances are out yet. I'm like, I have it. <laughs> like, I would get work that way, right? Um, but I love being able to talk to artists. Like, I wrote a cover story on Organized Confusion for Rap Pages. And Organized Confusion, one of my favorite rap groups of all time. Like, of course. Pharaoh yes. on that second Organized album. I mean, oh, my God. It's incredible. Um and, and so being able to talk to those artists about the music they made and about the artistic process, like that was just it for me. Two was the music, being able to hear music and hear it first and be yeah. able to frame the music for the public before 
when when they when, before they hear it for the first time. Yes, yes. And to point out things that I was noticing in the music and be able to help guide the conversation around around an artist release that was also very thrilling for me. And then and then three was again seeing my name in print. At some point, as I started writing for bigger magazines. Uh, I was like, I want to do this as a career. So I, I, I my byline, be, I dropped Jasbo as my byline right. and took on, took up my, my, my formal name, Joseph Patel, mm-hmm. um, as a byline. And, and so, I, but I still loved seeing my name in print. Um, and, um, and I, but freelance writing was hard and it, yeah. it was hard. It's hard to make money. It's, it's hard to make money. And I was, there's a couple, there's a period in the late nineties um, where I was living at home and I felt fly because I would see my name in national magazines and I had friends all over the country and I would get flown places to do interviews, but I wasn't making enough money to live on my own right. despite having a college degree and, 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 and just was no money in it. And I remember I was at home. I think my, my father had had a heart attack and that he survived, but it just was like mm. living at home in your mid twenties is not fresh. And, and I was, <laughs> right. and I, and I became depressed for a period of time, but I didn't recognize that. Mm-hmm. And, and then, and then I was like, okay, I have to, I have to, I have to figure out a way to get a job and like make a career out of this. But also as a, as a writer freelancing, you don't really get a chance to develop your voice. Yeah. And I was writing for magazines and, and I was I'd, if I wrote for Vibe, I'd have to write in a Vibe voice. If I wrote for the Source, I'd have to write in a Source oh, voice. Yeah, I wasn't being able to develop my own voice. Right, right. And I wasn't really good as a writer. Like I was, like I enjoyed what I did, but I wasn't able to develop my craft at one place with an editor who worked with me. Like it was right. just hustling for wherever I could get, you know, published. Sure. And those editors that each like say Vibe as opposed to like another like a Rolling Stone or whatever. Yeah. They're. You have to, yeah. They'll frame your work into their kind of aesthetic, right? Yeah, and they were also a lot of those natural magazines viewed me as the West Coast guy. Mm-hmm. So, hey, we're gonna do it. We want to do something on the on corrupt and Daz. Will you do it? And I'm like, I don't like that. I right, don't like right. corrupt and Daz. I like, I want to do something on Black Star. You know what yeah. I mean? Like it was like, and I realized I wasn't unless I moved to New York or LA, I wasn't going to be taken seriously as a writer, right? Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. Um, so I started thinking about like, okay, all right, I need to find a job. I need to be able to earn a living, and that sort of coincided with the late '90s dot com boom. And and I got hired by one of my editors at Raygun, who took over a dot com job at CD Now, and I started freelancing for him. And then he's like, "Listen, I'm staffing up. I'll move you to New York. I'll pay you a salary." And I was like, "Great!" So I moved to New York in '99 with a with a dot com job and earning a living as a writer, being able to freelance on the side. And being in the mix in New York, it was amazing. And yeah. well, you also must by that time. I mean, you have a, a you know a network of people in the industry that yeah, a network of people and, and and telling the writers at the magazines that I'm in New York now and being right. able to meet them and see the editors and hang out with them. That's yeah. that's how you ended up getting work. And I was like, oh, right. like I really fucked up by not being in New York or LA. Right. And I realized that when I moved to New York, but I had this dot com job and it was great. And I was New York was you know fucking fun. Like, sure. Uh, you know, after my first trip as an adult in '96, interviewing Tribe, I was I would come out two, three, four times a year. I'd stay a few days extra, and I just I wouldn't sleep the whole time I was there. <laughs> my first six months in New York after moving here, I realized it was like that all the time. I think I stayed home one night wow. in the first six six or eight months I'd lived here, right? Right. Because there were like five or six things happening the night. You'd go to um, you know, tramps and go see fucking tribe with yeah. D'Angelo, and you're mm-hmm. just like, oh my god, it's incredible, right? Mm-hmm. Um, what was the other place? Wetlands. Wetlands. Like yeah. uh, you know, 
Coflow is playing at Wetlands with MF Doom and whatever, and you're like, oh my <laughs> yeah. god, this is incredible. Yeah. And I and I you know just call someone, get on the list, and I'm in, and it was great. Um, and then nine months into that CD Now job, I got called by 360 Hip Hop. I saw one in Chris X, and they're like, we're doing this hip hop. Uh, website and it's Russell Simmons and it's going to be incredible. Oh, yeah. We're yeah. putting the all-star team together and they made me an offer for a salary that was beyond my wildest dreams. Wow. And I was like like a six-figure salary wow. in, in a year into my time in New York, less than a year. And I was like, this is incredible. Yeah. And and that was fun. Um, and then that, the bubble burst, right? Right. Like, like when I was, I was the culture editor for 360 Hip Hop and we had a lot of money to burn through like every dot com then. And I remember I hired Sasha Fair Jones to write stuff for me. I did a, a, wow. a, a photo blog with uh, with Ricky Powell. I did. Uh, I had Egon write for me. Wow! Yeah. I had a great writer. Great writer, and like he was just a kid in college at the time, right? Uh-huh. Um, and I was paying him a dollar a word, and he was like, "This is incredible! I can't Dope. believe like you know because I just have this money to blow through, right?" And I didn't, I didn't, you know, didn't realize it was a bubble and it was all going to burst, but it was a bubble and it all burst. Right. So after that, I was, and then nine eleven happened. I was freelancing still, and um, were you in New York when nine eleven happened? Yeah, I was in New York because I had moved to ninety nine. So I was living here, and I was living in Chelsea. And uh, oh, wow. and nine eleven actually, it's funny because I remember I was writing, I was I was writing a review of Ghostface Supreme clientele for Vice uh, for Vibe, and it was due the Monday, uh, the tenth, and I was late, of course. Mm-hmm. And then nine eleven happened, and I remember getting a call on nine eleven from my editor, whose name I won't say because it was really, and, and she was like, "I still need your review." Oh my! And I was gosh. like, I, "I was like, I know I'm late, and I know I owe it to you, but I can't work on it today because the world is burning." Yes. What the fuck? And she's like, "We're still here, and we're closing the magazine. I need your review." It was supposed to be, I think, the lead review for that issue. And I remember hanging up on her and just being like, I can't get into you today. And I think the, the magnitude of what happened sank in over there. Yeah. Jesus um, Christ. Dude. I mean, I don't blame her. She was under pressure and she was young and, and you know, I get it. And I was late. Like, like you know, real talk, I was late. Right, so, right. like, I was fucking them up. And um, I ended up doing the review that week and turning it in before the end of the week. And, and, and really, I kind of phoned it in. Like, it just, you know, it wasn't. It was just to get it done, right? Yeah, I understand. And then post nine eleven, like really, the industry kind of dried up. Like, like it was hard to find work, even being in New York. And like, and what I realized is that um, I just was hard. And and then so it's funny, funny story. John Carmonica. So when I met John Carmonica in ninety nine, my first week in New York, he told me that he got into music writing because of me. He had read something I had okay. written. I think it was a Razcast piece in Bomb or Herb or something. And he's like, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. And I tell him that I got out of music writing because of him. Because as oh. I was getting frustrated with the freelance life and not being able to write well, what I was, what I realized is I was looking at people like John, like Khalifa, Sasha, Fair Jones, Hua, Dave, Tompkins. Like, and I was like, I'll never be that good. Like, they're really good at it. And yeah. I will never be that good as a writer. I love talking to artists. I love storytelling. I love the the storylines in, in, in music. And I love, you know, knowing the history, knowing releases. And but I will, and I love the culture, but I will never be that good as a writer. I don't love it enough. It's hard for me. It's tedious. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's a slog. And I don't love it. And I was really getting frustrated by that. And... And what I decided was I have to leave writing. Like, I can't do this. Wow. Okay. Because I'm, I will never be as good as John. Like, that. So, <laughs> so that's, how, that's the, that's the th- funny thing that, that John and I share. He says he got into it because of me. And I say I got out of it because of him. And then 
so what I realized is, is a couple of years later, like I was in debt and not getting work and, you know, not happy with writing, but it was the only thing I knew how to do. And I had never worked at a place where I could develop skills and, and, and follow a track. Like I, I wasn't able to get jobs at magazines as, a, you know, editors or writers or whatever. Right, right. I was just in a really frustrating place, and and so I decided I'll I just need a I just need to get somewhere where I can just find a path and figure out something new. And fortunately, um, I got hit up by Ocean McAdams at MTV in two thousand three, and he's like, "Hey, um, we're hiring for a staff writer here at MTV News, and we're trying some people out for a few days at a time. Like, are you interested?" I'm like, "Yes," and. Uh, a few years earlier, he had asked me. He he knew my byline. He had asked me to try out for a hip hop hosting gig. Oh which, yeah, which I did just because that's what you do. Right, I just right. moved to New York. I'm like, this is cool. Yeah, and it ultimately went. It went to sway, and I was like, why? How? And how on earth did you ever think I could be? So you were up for that same gig? Yeah, they brought in all these hip hop writers mm-hmm. to do camera tests. And I remember my camera test was awful. I remember I did a <laughs> shot of bourbon. At a bar down the street before I went in to, to right. do the, the 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 tryout and um, and and then they gave that job to Sway and I was like I remember when I was at MTV years later I, I, I laughed at Ocean I was like I didn't how would you ever think that I could do what Sway does like he's incredible <laughs> at it right but so he asked me to come in to try out for the staff writer job I think Minya O was there as a staff writer who had just left mm-hmm. and they were trying to fill that position and and what they were doing is they were having people come in for one or two days and just pitch stories and write stories for for online MTV News online and for on air. And they would, you know, going to try a bunch of people out. So I went in for a day. Then they asked me back the next week for two days. And then they asked me back the following week. And then they're like, can you stay for a week? And then can you do it for a month? And So and, slowly built up? Yeah. And it was like, what I realized is I found out I was really good at news writing. Like, I, mm. knew, I knew how to turn a story. Like, I knew that, you know, especially for hip-hop. Like, I knew right. that a release date, when an album has a release date, that's a news story. Yeah. that people want to know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and all I would do is I'd call the label and say, do you have a release date for this album? And they'd tell me. And then I'd flip it into a story. <laughs> and so every morning there was a 9.30 a.m. news meeting and I'd pitch five or six things and they liked all my ideas and I'd write them up and they'd get good numbers. And, and so then at some point at the end of my first trial month, I think it was like August 2003 or 2004, I forget, but they, I was like, so the month's up. And they're like, oh, no, no, you got the job. Like, you're good. So okay. I, I was at MTV, and um, there's a couple of people who who were really um, trying to discourage me from taking that job. They're like, MTV's garbage. Right. Like, like you, you know, you're not going to ever be able to do anything real there. Right. And I was just like, you know what? Like, you might be right, but, like, mm-hmm. I need a job. And I, I yeah, just there comes need, a point, right? Yeah, and I just need to try something new. And, and this job was mostly TV writing, like translating online stories for TV reads. Okay. And so that was something new for me, and, and yeah. it was something, a challenge that I got to tackle. What, that would then run on a teleprompter or something Yeah, that, like that? that Kurt Loder would read, and John yeah. Norris would read, and Gideon Yego and Sujin Pak and, and Sway would read, That's right? That's cool. Yeah. It was cool, and yeah. it was a different type of writing, because you, you're, writing, you're writing to show. Right. And not writing to write, right? You're not yeah. writing just for language. You're writing to show. You're writing around clips. And mm-hmm. and so I would my job at MTV News for my first six months as a staff news writer was writing reporting and stories that were actual news for online and then taking those stories and writing them for T V reads. And mm-hmm. I was good at it. 
I was really so different. flipping two stories out of one, basically, right? Yeah, right. one for, for different mediums, right? Yeah, yeah. And so, um, and, and it's a great and, test. And writing too. for TV, you're writing around interview bites and you're writing right. around B roll, and like that was new to me. And mm-hmm. I realized I really liked it, and I was also really good at it. And I was like, okay, this is the opportunity I was looking for. This is a way to be at a place, get paid a salary, have some stability and security, but also it's thrilling. It's a different environment. It's a new skill I can learn while I'm here. Right. And so the biggest decision I made in my career was taking the job at MTV and not thinking that I knew more about music than they did, mm-hmm, it was, mm-hmm. it, which is something that the younger me would have definitely done. Right, right. But I said, you know what? I'm going to just submit to this place and learn about it and then figure out my path here. Yeah. And so for the first six months at MTV, I took everything they threw at me. I, I Whatever garbage, junket, whatever... Britney Spears is releasing a perfume at Macy's. There's a red carpet. Can you do the interviews on the red carpet? Really? Fans. I was like, yes. <laughs> Diddy is doing some, you know, spectacle and whatever uh, for some, you know, whatever event. Can you work the red carpet? Yes. Uh, we need to do a promo for this, you know, stupid movie, whatever that's coming out. Can you write, do the interviews and write a story for it? I'm like, yes. Like I did everything they threw at me. One, it it taught me about the institution. Mm-hmm. Two, it gave me a lot of practice and a lot of reps writing for television, writing for hosts. Right, right. Three, it gave me exposure into working in television and working with video and clips. So yep. I would do interviews with every artist that came in there. And doing an interview on for, even though you're off camera, but doing an interview with an artist for television right. is different than doing it for a magazine. Sure. In a magazine, you can put a recorder on and just sit around the table and talk and have a conversation and I was really good at that Yeah. but for TV you have to give space you have to set up questions um, they need to explain it for an audience that may not know what the question was right you need like yeah, they yeah. have to incorporate the question in the answer but yeah. in a way that doesn't sound stupid um, and and it, I, I started to really learn a new skill set and what I realized is I, I, I was like oh this is cool and then uh, again the, with the roots like I pitched a story um, for that I wanted to be a video story, which was the Roots are recording a new album. They've got this new studio in Philly that they've turned into a club, mm-hmm. and it's it's a strip club and a nightclub, and they just have different people coming in every night to jam, and they're, that's how they're recording their new album. And you know, I obviously knew Questlove, and, and I'd written a lot about the Roots, and Rich, yeah. Rich Nichols had you know invited me down there, and he's like, "You want to come hang out?" And I was like, "Yeah." I was like, "But I really want to do a story for MTV about this." So I pitched the story, and they're like, this is great. Go down there with a shooter producer and, and, and do your interviews and make this video package. It was my first video package. So I went down there, and we shot it, and it was like the Roots gave me great bites, and there was strippers from the strip clubs that were there after hours, uh-huh. and like people like Erica and Common, uh, Erica Badu and Common, and like Jill Scott and different people like in the studio so, coming in and out. This you know, the, the Roots always have a younger group of musicians that they bring in to work with them on stuff right, right. to like mentor them and like so it was like a room a studio full of like 40 musicians playing and wow and it was incredible we shot this this piece and then i took the footage back and i constructed a script for a video package my first time and so i had done the pitch i did the interviews i, I scripted out this piece with video clips and a voiceover it was my first time doing that it goes on air we edit it uh i'm in the edit it, it goes on air and the 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 info screen that comes on before the package says the roots recording new album 
uh, producer, and it was the producer shooter that I had gone with. His name was on it. My name was not on it. Oh, and shit. I said, I said, wait, wait, why, why are you listed as producer, but I'm not listed? He's like, well, I'm the producer, and you were the writer. And I was like, no, 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 but I did everything. He's like, well, then you, that's producing. And I was like, oh. So I was like, that's what I want to do. Yeah. I want to be a producer. Right. Because I just did, I directed you to shoot what I wanted to, but I did everything else. Right. Which is being a producer. Which is being a producer. Yeah. That's what he told me. And I yeah. was like, I was like, that's what I want to do. So six months into my time at MTV, I did that root story. I went to my bosses the next day and I said, I want to tr- take a crack at producing. And they're like, okay, um, find a story to produce. We'll let you produce it. We'll give you a senior producer to sort of be your training wheels. Okay. You can't, you have to do it in addition to your daily duties, but, okay. but take a crack at it. Right. So I found a story, uh, pitched it to them, produced it from beginning to end. Uh, it was on the Brooklyn High School marching band called the Brooklyn Steppers. Okay. That the band leader was, um, uh, they did hip hop songs, like, 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 uh, covers basically co- right? b- band covers of, of right. hip hop songs and that was really interesting to a lot of the kids that were in the band mm-hmm. but to be in the band and to do that and have fun and travel with them you had to maintain a, a, a B plus average okay. and so the kids the kids there were being they would have homework time and tutoring time and then they'd practice so there's your story right that was my story right. so I did that and it looked it looked I started getting into directing I'm like we're going to shoot this band playing this riff and we're going to shoot it from two different angles and I was right. like directing and, nice. and I was like this is what I want to do like this is it it's storytelling that I loved about when I was doing journal, rap journalism for right. magazines but it's a different way of telling the story that is new to me and it was thrilling and so I pitched that it did really well and then and then I just was doing that at MTV I was pitching video stories and then so six months after that story ran, I pitched a series of video stories on Houston's hip-hop scene Okay, that nice. was starting to bubble up. And the right. reason why I pitched it is because I loved all the stuff out of Houston, UGK, um, Mike Jones at the time, and all, right. the, all the, the, the Swisher House stuff. Yeah. Obviously, DJ Screw and Chopped and Screwed. I love that stuff. But I had heard Still Tippin uh, on a radio station in Atlanta – and then when I went to the Bay for the holidays, I heard it in the Bay. And I said, oh, this song is going to break. Yeah. And this is this is, this is is the song that will put the Houston scene, Long Underground, Lil' Flip and all that stuff, which has always yeah. been regional and underground. Right. This is going to put that scene on the map. So I went to MTV. And because I had done six months to a year of just bullshit work, they trusted me. And they, they knew I knew how to tell a story in their style. And I pitched this thing to them. They said yes. We went to Houston. And I did a series of stories one, that was going to run one a day for a week. Sway hosted. Uh, at that point, I was I was really producing him a lot, right? and, and we did these stories. And we and I started to do. I started to get creative. I was like, Sway, I, I want you to do a stand up, but I well, since we're in Houston, we should shoot the stand up at the Houston Rockets practice and with Yao Ming in the background. <laughs> and so, and that was different from TV. And you had access like that because of MTV, right? You could get I, in I there. I call the Rockets, and I'm like, hey, we're doing a thing uh, on Houston Hip Hop, but I want to shoot the stand-up at the Rockets Arena. And they're nice. like, yeah, great, come by. Um, and so we did five stories. We did one on uh, U2K. We did one on uh, Mike Jones. We did one on uh, DJ Screw. We did one on, uh, uh, I forget what else. but Scarface? Uh, it wasn't Scarface. We did. It was Scarface and Rap-A-Lot. 
Okay, cool. And so and we did five video stories, and they ran one a day for Houston Hip Hop Week. And then my boss was like, we should clump this together into a half-hour show. And I was like, yeah. Like a special. Like a, like a Houston Hip Hop special. So he's like, uh, I'll give you a little extra money to spend some time in the edit and comp this together to a show. So we did. We called it My Block off, off the Scarface song. Right, right. And we put it out, and it did really, really well. I remember that. Yeah. What year is this? This is 2005. Nice. So, so you made that. So I made that. And I made that a That's year into my time at MTV. And it did It did. It did really good numbers right. for a half-hour show on MTV and MTV2 because every time it repeated, it got the same numbers. Not like, bad. And that was really important to them at the time. It wasn't like when every time it aired, it got big numbers. It's so that every time they played it, it got the same number. Yeah. So they knew that a half a million to a million people were watching that show every time they replayed it. And so that was a success. Yeah, yeah. So they're like, my boss was like, let's make this a series. And I'm like, yes, the next one we're going to do should be Memphis. We should do it on Three Six Mafia. We should do it like I want to do Memphis. Yeah, and so th- my block became a series, and 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 that became how like that year at MTV my, was my transition out of music journalism magazines into storytelling for television, and I stayed at MTV. My, we did eight episodes of my block. I got really good at it because I understood. Did you go back to the Bay? Yeah, so we did an episode of the Bay, which Dope. was like an incredible homecoming for me. I like bet. it was, it was cool to come back to the Bay as like a TV producer to, yeah, yeah, to shine a light on a scene that I grew up in. No question, and, and 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 getting a lot of love, right? And the thing I loved about my block and what I was able to do at MTV that because I had spent that time learning about their institution and building the trust, my skill at MTV was being able to tell really underground stories to a mainstream audience that that didn't offend the people on the ground and still made sense to the people who didn't know about it. Nice. So it's it was an art right there. Yeah. Right? I mean, that was my, that was, that was the skill I developed at MTV that I thought I was really good at and think I'm still good at and has allowed me to have a career as a, now as a storyteller for video content, right. As yeah. a director and producer for video is at MTV. I was able to tell the sto- story of DJ screw and Michael Watts and s- what chopped and screwed meant right. without offending anyone on the ground, giving them they're just due and telling the story correctly. Maybe not as deep as they wanted it, right? But right. But, and then, but being able to say that same story makes sense to someone who doesn't know what it is. Yeah. And so my block was fun for me because the A block would always be the A segment would always be the biggest thing out of that city. The B segment would always be something a little bit more cultural, like language or cars or something like that. Okay. The C segment was always me introducing someone new from that scene or oh, who, cool. who maybe was underground. Uh, and then the D segment was always like the the crazy like performance segment. Oh, cool! And so and the show would end on that, right? It would always end on something smaller because it, it was the shortest segment of the show. Right. But like, uh, but cooler, right? Mm-hmm. And, and like full of flavor. So right. like, so like in Memphis we did uh, Three Six Mafia, but we had to tie it into the movie Hustle and Flow. Okay. So yeah, you know, but sense. we did like Lil White, and we did like oh, Fraser Boy, <laughs> and I would also get people to do cameos, right? So nice. like when we did uh, for Memphis, we we got um, uh, what's his name? What was the producer's name? Jazzy Faye. Uh huh. Yes. Jazzy Faye's father was one of the people in Otis Redding's band no who survived. Who who he was the guy who didn't make go on the plane. That killed Otis Redding. Wow. He they flipped for seats on the plane. He lost the coin toss. Wow. And that plane went down and killed that Otis Redding and his band. Yeah. Except for two members. He was one of the two members. Wow. And that's and Jazzy that Jesse's Faye's father. Dad. So we wow. did an interview since Jazzy Faye was like big producer at the time. Sure. We did an interview with him and his father at the Stax Museum. Dope. And so I would that was my way of being able to get like the real shit into yeah. like a big show, right? Yeah. Um 
when cool. we did the, when we did the Bay episode, like uh, we rode around in a convertible with Too Short, and literally people are like ghost riding the whip, like for real in the streets of Oakland, right. and we're getting that on camera. So. But it was also I put Little B on camera. Nobody, nice. nobody knew who the pack was. Wow! And we brought this in, is before that. What was their song about? Vans, Vans. Yeah, right. and Too Short had was working. He's like, I got my, these kids. I'm working with. I'm like, bring them down. And I had Little B do the bumper to commercial. With his stunner shades on, oh, and shit. it was like that's so dope. Yeah, and it was cool. So I was I had a lot of fun with that show. But that was the thing, I I worked there at MTV doing that until 2009. The last thing I did there uh, was I was the lead producer for the 2008 election. Wow! And and that was like a dream of mine. I had grown up watching Choose or Lose on MTV. Of course. And now yeah. I was the senior producer leading the coverage for the 2008 election, which was historic on so many different levels. Yes. Um, it's how I met my wife. We were really? The, we were the only two people in the building that were for Obama, not Hillary. Wow. The only two people on the floor. So, like, like when Obama was my guy when he announced, and everyone else on the floor was for Hillary, my wife was the only other person who was down for Obama early on. Huh. And that's how we met, became friends, and then ultimately started dating and got married. That's incredible. Um, but once I finished the Choose Loose stuff at MTV, I realized, and the inauguration, I realized I was done there. I was... I couldn't. I had learned everything I could learn there. So wait, did you just you met? So you obviously met and worked with Obama a little bit during this. I thing? did twi- twice, uh, twice. Yeah. Wow. We, we, we did these um, uh, forums in uh-huh. New Hampshire and in Iowa oh. with the candidates. Yeah. And um, similar to the original Choose Your like when they did like Bill Clinton. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So I had grown up watching that. So to be who was that with Tabitha Soren? Tabitha Soren and right. Kurt Loder. Yeah. Right. So. Right. So 2008, we were in 2007, 2008. We did those with uh, John Edwards, Hillary Clinton, Obama, John McCain. Um, there were town hall meetings. I was producing and directing them. Um, when we did the Obama one, I got to meet him and I got my picture taken with him, which was great. That's so dope. Um, I had a cigarette with him. What? I, I can't even say that. Actually, I had no, I I had a cigarette with him, which was that's crazy. pretty cool. Yeah, it was cool. <laughs> um, and. <laughs> And yeah, so when when the inauguration happened, I realized my time at MTV was done, and I ended up. Uh, but by that point, I had spent six years there and turned from a writer into a director and producer, and that was it. That was my career transition. So how? Did, where did you jump from there? You did Vice. So from there, I went to Vice. So um, obviously, Vice at that time was in a transitional phase too, right? Or or about to be. Yeah, right? Vice had. Vice was the Vice guys. So I had start, I had been writing for Vice since '96. Okay, so since it was even being made in, in Montreal, Montreal, yeah, right. it was a broadsheet in Montreal, and which was had some hilarious journalism. Then, yeah, right? it was you know Vice was a vibe at the time, right? Like I didn't yeah. agree with all their like they would they they scrubbed all the archives now, but like right. back then they were you know headlines with the N word and the F word, and right. like, they they didn't. You know they didn't really care. Fritz the cat also. Fritz the uh, cat, yeah. yeah, yeah. Fritz the cat, man. He was <laughs> he was a character. He was in search of divine. Styler. In search of divine Styler was uh, legendary. <laughs> yeah. Wow, legendary. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Vice was always in the MTV building because they had signed a deal to have MTV fund their video venture VBS. And, oh yes. Okay. And about a year and a half, two years, I think it was 2007. They started being in the building a lot. They had asked me to work for them. Sroosh is uh, one of the founders. Was one of my best friends. Oh, okay. Um, since I started, since I met him in '96 and started writing for Vice, we're both brown dudes in this industry, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and 
and he and I were DJing under the name Indo Pack Attack, which was kind of funny. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, but he had, they had asked me to join them because they were looking for video producers. And I, but I, I said no to them initially because I wasn't ready and I hadn't learned everything I needed to learn. And, and right. I wanted to stay at MTV. I was doing my blog. I was doing other shows like, you know, uh, the premium inter- premier interview shows on MTV, half hours with Jay-Z, half hours with Justin Timberlake. I was producing those. Yeah, and those so are the, big. And those, and those were big and those, right. were, those were cool. And, and, and I, have, I wasn't done learning yet, right? right. So I, I turned him down, but as soon as I realized that after the election in 2008, I was like, I had done everything I could do at MTV. I felt I was successfully had made this transition from writer into video producer and director. Mm-hmm. I, I said, I'm ready. And so I hit them up, and they're like, yeah, we, we would love you to come on board and, and help us get from where we are now to like the next level. And I said, yeah, TV. And they're like, you know how to do TV. That's where we want to go. So I took that job um, in 2009, and I worked at Vice for four years. Uh, I got it, that got me out of music a little bit. Yeah. Um, but it, it, in Vice, working at Vice is when I realized how much I did know. Like mm-hmm, I really mm-hmm. did know my my way around as a video producer and director. Like I, 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 I wasn't safe. I wasn't in the safe space of music anymore. Sure, I get I, it. We were traveling around the world and doing you know all sorts of wild stories, and I realized. I wanted to get Vice off their, you know, white guys on safari vibe. And yeah, do, true, do, true, do, true. Do more like, you know, more from the ground sort of perspective. What are it? some of the far-flung places that you guys that you went? So uh, I produced a lot for Shane. Um, and then one of the first things I did at Vice, I was like, if you want to get on TV, I know how to produce MTV style. Let's do a show for MTV. And we, oh. we pitched a show called Vice Guide to Everything that would take these, like, 60-minute esoteric docs that Vice was doing and, and instead create like five to seven minute segments cool. and come okay. together into a TV show. So right. um, for that show, I mean, we went to Jordan, Lebanon, uh, Cairo, wow, Yemen. I went to Yemen Whoa. with uh, Spike Jones and Shane and we got detained by national security. What's Yemen like outside once you got out of that? Uh, that's a whole other story. Is it? It's, it's, my, it's my one war story. Okay. Like, like we got detained by national security and had to bribe our way out of the country with CIA help. Wow. Like man. that was like a real like that was like that's my one war story. But more than that, like Vice I got to fly all over the world, like you know, Tokyo and the slums of Rio to interview uh, you know, Favela warlords and like wow. it was cool. Yeah. Um Vice was the most fun I ever had, but it was also the worst job on me. Like I, I quit after four years because it just wasn't a healthy place to work. Sure, and you know, I'll say it like those. I didn't like working for those guys anymore. They weren't good people. Right, and I I produced the pilot for the HBO series. Okay, that um, that we sold to HBO that people know as Vice on HBO. Yeah, and I walked away from that. I walked away from an Emmy award, a certain Emmy that it was going to get, and yeah. I walked away from a role at the TV channel I knew they were going to have. And I walked away from all that because I just couldn't stand working there anymore. Wow, like it was. A very very unhealthy toxic environment. Right. Good for you though. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it was. I mean, I know it's that it's hard. Yeah, I don't doubt that whatsoever. It was hard. And I know that there's obviously a bigger story there, but um, and sure, after, especially after working your way up all those years to like you know, not a lot of people can finally get a big payout or or a nice trophy for all the shit that they've done. Yeah. You know, it's it's not it's no easy task, especially if you come from a world of freelancing all the way up yeah. to that shit. Trust me, a lot very few people. I mean, I, I I don't even have to say that, but they don't get to that point. But so to be able to walk away, I mean, that takes you know guts. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, yeah. 
I mean, integrity. Look, I think the hardest thing, like you know, I I bopped around a couple of jobs since then. Like I went, right. I, I left, I left, I took a job at the at MySpace when they were trying to resurrect themselves. Mm-hmm. I took that job mainly as a way to get out of Vice. Right. Like I took it because it was three times the salary I was making at Vice, who had never given me a raise in four years, or even oh, I was word. head of production. Like wow. it's hard reading about how the company's worth a billion dollars right. on paper and they won't give you a raise. Like that was they were yeah. shitty then. Yeah, they're they're still kind of shitty now if you read the papers, right? Right. And I, I'm not afraid to say that. Like like I. I loved my time there, but they were shitty people to work for, mm. and and I left and walked away from you know because I couldn't be a part of that club anymore. I didn't yeah. want to be. I took this job at MySpace. I spent a year there, and what I learned there is that I I could be an executive. I didn't have to be in the field to still f- feel fulfilled. Right, right. And 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 even though that you know it was a certain disaster, right? But I, I was like, look, if it's a long shot, if it works, then you're a legend. If it doesn't work. I got out of debt. I was able to save some money. I was able to hire a team of people um, and run and learn how to be an executive. And Did you pull Justin Timberlake in? Wasn't he like the he spokesman? Was, he was, it was his creative team that brought me on board. Oh, cool. Yeah, and I, I he wasn't heavily involved. His creative team was, and they yeah. were they were cool. But they it was you know it blew up after a year and a few months. Right. And and I took some time off from there. I got married, and and I ended up taking a job at the Fader to to run content and creative for the right. Fader. Did three years there and took a job, you know, a year ago to left Fader to work at Vivo. And, you know, I think to your point earlier, like I've managed to find a career out of this. Yeah. I don't know. I, you know, I'm the kind of person like I know other people who I, my, my skill set has always been a little bit of everything. Like, yes, clearly. I, I, I yeah. know I know a little bit of everything, and I know how to put things together. Right. And I'm great at collaborations, but great at putting things together. I'm great at taking an idea, and making it better. Right. But I'm I'm not good at working on my own. Mm. And and so yes, I've been able to make a career out of out of this, and I earn good money in a way that other people maybe don't. Right. Sure. I was able to transition to video in 2004. Yeah. Before good. pivot to video became a thing in 2017. No right? doubt. No doubt. And. I was able to get out of the rap journalism freelance racket yeah. before um, other people, you know, found found out it was it, it was not uh, going to be you know uh, a, a way to earn a living anymore. Yeah, um, and I'm I'm happy about that. I've been able to make some stuff visually that I'm really proud of. Like I'm like I'm like I have a really good visual portfolio of oh, I don't stuff I've it. directed and stuff I've produced. And I'm really, really proud of that. Yeah, because the Vivo stuff, too, I've been, I've been kind of peeping that a little bit, too. That's, uh, uh, you know, an updated version of something that you've already yeah. been working on. Yeah, right? and it's like, and so I think, you know, even Vivo, I took that mainly just because it's a job and I got to put a team together and have money to spend and make stuff. That's incredible. Like, that's it for me right now. It's like, I just want to be able to make stuff that's cool. Yeah. The thing I'm missing that really started when I left Vice is, you know, I've invested a lot of time and energy and experience in this culture, and it's finally coming to fruition on a very mainstream, big level, big right. scale. Right. And I'm not in a place where I can take advantage of that. Like, I worked, I did stuff on Kanye as he was coming up at MTV because he was always in the building. Like, he was dating a couple people in the building, so right. he was always there. And you know, I was at a Grace Jones show once, and I feel a tap on my shoulder. It's Kanye. He's like, "Hey, what's up?" Like, wow. We did the first half hour interview. We did a half hour interview show with Kanye called All Eyes on Kanye West. Were you off camera? I was producing the thing. So I was were you the one? Uh, no, Sway was the interviewer. Right, right. And, and, and I was directing it, right? So, so. We, we shot it in a studio. His mother was there. We had, we had his artwork uh, in the room. 
that he had worked on when he was in high school and college. Wow. And he, it was his first in-depth interview for MTV, prepped Sway for the questions. We went over like what we were, wanted to talk about, what we wanted to get. I put it together in the edit, and it went out, and it was like, that's what I was, I was good at. Yeah. But I wasn't able to stay at Vice long enough to be able to see through ideas on a big scale. Because right. I had moved to another job, and and then I was not at that job long enough to see things on a big scale. Right. So the one thing that's missing from my career now that I'm I'm finding a way to get back to, is being able to do things that take advantage of my time, relationship, and knowledge of the culture, and do them on a big scale where they deserve to be now. Right. I don't know what form that takes. I don't yeah. know what it looks like. It might be a movie. It might be a script. It might be a doc. It might be a doc series. Mm-hmm. But that's sort of where my head is at right now. Is like how do the stuff that we love, that we we want to hear those stories, like how do I get that out into the world? And that's sort of the, yeah. the thing I'm looking for now. Yeah. Obviously, we're having this conversation. It's New Year's Eve. Too, yes, yes. Which is interesting. Um, Point that, of reflection. Yeah, for sure. And and, um, and that's why I love doing these conversations, too, because uh, it really taps. I'd like to hear what is going on, especially with writers, like yeah. what uh, where their head is at, too, you know, because... There's something very relatable to everything that you're saying. But, I mean, and, 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 and there is there is something about kind of consistently starting over. Yeah. You know, it's a part yeah. of that music hustle, too, because nothing lasts forever. Yeah. You know, the same way that these magazines that, that I pulled out of the stacks, they're all from another era, you know. Yeah. And, um, and that medium is no longer, you know, the same way MTV is not what it was when you were working. Yeah. At MySpace, of course, long gone, yeah. you know. And uh, and who's to say that you know what the future of Vice even holds? That might just self destruct in a way too. So yeah, like I uh, mean, it's weird. A lot of the writing I think that I've done, like you've done, that other people have done. It's like you can't find it online. No, like, all that '90s stuff is not available online. No, I know, and that's why I hold on to these things yeah. too because I love reading them because it's a it's a very different style of it's journal. different style of journalism. The tone, the tempo. Yeah, I mean, look, right now maybe one of the only magazines that really covers the culture. In a very sort of broad, broad way, genreless, we're all connected. Is Fader? Yeah, definitely. You know, complex to some degree, but complex is very male and very sort of like hype beasty. But no like doubt. Fader, you know, Fader covers the culture. I enjoyed being there and, and working with a, a great group of people that you know um, on the editorial team and video team that that got that. And but the '90s was filled with magazines like ten magazines like that. Yeah, like you know what I mean. Like mm-hmm. not only not only magazines in the states, but also in the UK and like. There's a certain, oh, yeah. you know, there's a certain, there's a certain thing about reading Bomb, old issues, you know, looking at old issues of Bomb Hip Hop magazine, mm-hmm. and Herb especially, where you're just like, wow, like, to be young and in the mix and to see your culture and see this world that you're in, invested in and, and live in represented like this, like, yeah. like in a, you know, written by the people um, that are inside the culture, like that's a that was a thrilling thing. Yes, and there there was no template to follow. Like you you were making your own way and making your own space. Yeah, um, on you know figuring it out as you went along, and that was that was really exciting. What I think is pretty pretty amazing too, because I'm I'm a first generation kid too. So my parents came from Hungary oh, yeah. in in uh, in '69 basically, and that I know that there's something I can uh, deeply relate to your experience in that in that you know coming from parents that as a first generation kid that that came to the U.S. and knowing that there's a lot of other writers like that, yeah. you know. That they sort of were born into this American culture of the, you know, the '70s and '80s, and uh, sort of made their own life. Their parents not really knowing, understanding what they're doing, and that like creating 
a industry out of scratch almost you yeah. know um, or by you know their own sort of mental willpower and like the work ethic that I think gets instilled in like first generation kids too yeah um, I think it's dope I mean I, I think that you know what you've done and where you've gone with it too is a pretty it's a pretty unique kind of trajectory Cause some guys because you haven't you never you haven't read a book uh, written a book or anything right no I don't have the patience for it <laughs> right. I, don't, I, don't, I don't think I have the talent or the patience for it I've contributed to people's books like right. you know I've written, written a couple things for Oliver's classic material yeah I think one of my favorite things I've ever written in my life in fact I read it recently again and I was like, I can't believe I wrote this. This is really good. I can't believe I wrote this. I could never do this again. Uh-huh. It was a essay I wrote for this book of uh, on Fela that uh, oh, Trevor cool. Schoonmaker had put out a few years ago. Oh yeah, I haven't read um, that. I wrote an essay on there uh, that sort of linked, you know, the Fela sound and contemporary music at the time. Um, and it was it was maybe the best thing I ever wrote. Like it was really um, fulfilling, very very well informed and, and I really it was well edited so it, it, you know yeah. but yeah like I've I've just tried to find a space where I can fit in um, you know but yeah nothing will ever be like the 90s like every, <laughs> every, listen every everybody th- their favorite time their favorite period of music is when they came of age yeah and for people like us it was the 90s and so those are the things I, I, I will always remember fondly and will never be replicated and yeah. it's, it's some kid today, like Lil Pump, is like where they're coming of age, and that's going to mean everything to them in ten to fifteen Absolutely. years. Absolutely, and I get that. But but I think the thing is that I I don't uh, you know it, culture in general, not just hip hop culture. It's a living, breathing thing, and it's it's always changing, and it's exciting. Um, it's exciting that I can access you know DJ mixes from around the world in a, in a, in a, you know a la carte in a moment's notice <laughs> right um, it's thrilling you know that um, you know some kid in his bedroom can change music yeah you know you have to get, sift through a lot of garbage to get there but but yeah but I still think the one thing that holds true now that still holds tr- true and I think kids are smarter now than they've ever been but you know we did this pre-internet a lot of it we we the fact that we did it at all is amazing if you think about that yeah a you lot know, of cold calls a lot of cold a, a calls of, you know faxing and meeting and yeah. driving and all that and stuff. spending time with people and seeing, yes. seeing magazine on their coffee table and you're like what yeah. is that yeah you know like think about it, like the fact that you have a copy of the bomb hip-hop magazine here <laughs> in a brooklyn brownstone like yeah. like that's crazy to me 25 years later like yeah. like that's cool yeah. and you know, I remember going to L.A. and, like, you know, we would hang out at Brian B. Plus's place. And he'd have the most amazing records and magazines that I'd never seen before. And then I'd go to Davis and get turned on to that and, like, cold call someone. And, you know, I, I wrote a jazz column for – I wrote a column for Straight No Chaser out of really? Brooklyn, which was, like, a jazz magazine. Yeah, man. And I wrote, like, a Beats column for them or a hip-hop Dope. column for them. It's like <laughs> – and, and, and it was, it's crazy. Like, pre-internet, like, I was – you know, writing a column and reading it over the phone or or faxing it over, and wow. someone would transcribe it on the other end. And then six weeks after the magazine came out in London, I'd get a package in the mail with a copy of the magazine, and mm-hmm. it was like, wow, <laughs> this is crazy. So, yeah, I mean, it's I think it's just like, you know, for me, I love music, I love storytelling, I love people, um, and that whatever form that takes, that's what I want to do. Yeah, I, I still. To this day, I can't believe I'm able to earn a living and get paid for for some of this stuff. Like, yeah. I really, 
is I tell my team at Vivo, um, a really great group of kids, like I tell them that all the time, like never take for granted that like you're getting paid to just be creative all day. Yeah. And and make shit. Like that's cool. Yeah. You know? It took a while to get to be to be able to actually make real money doing that too. I mean, yeah. You know. Yeah. But we we persisted through it because we yeah. loved it, right? Yeah. Like that's yeah. it. That's really it. Well, before we totally wrap, I, you know, you made you made mention of these bios and stuff, which I was super yeah. intrigued by. So, besides, you, so you did Midnight Marauders and, and, and Slum Villages debut. Is there anything else that springs I mean, to mind? I, I wrote bios just because it won. As a freelancer, and every freelancer does this, even even still still today, even though they don't do as many bios. Right. Writing bios was a very easy way to make money. Yeah. Because labels paid, and they paid well. Yeah. You got the music before anybody else. You did a quick interview that was just basically by the numbers kind of interview. Sure. What are the songs? What do you make it? What was the vibe? Right. And the artist would answer those questions. And you just it took an hour to write. Yeah. And you'd get paid on time. Yeah. And, yeah. And so that was that was the bio racket. For me, like I said earlier, it was also a way to get um, get the music before even the writers got the music. Yeah, man. And before the editors got the music. Um, and so that was cool. I did that with Tribe. I did that with I did that with a lot of people. I, I really forget, but. The one that does stand out is I did it for the first NERD album. Really? For In Search, in Search of. of. And what I ended up, I ended, I, I love the Neptunes. I, I got the demo, which I still have, because it also has a song that never came out. And you oh. can't even find it on the internet right now. It's crazy. I, I got the demo. They had, they had trouble shopping that album. They were shopping it for two years. Oh, wow. No one would pick it up, because it, it was so unselfconsciously not like the Neptunes. Right. It was just this different vibe. It's still my favorite NERD album. Uh, me too, by far, man. And the original version, not the original the version, not the one. replayed one. Of course, the original version with the beats because it was rock music through program beats, right? And it was an attitude and a and a and a narrative that that was so unself conscious. And then once they became conscious of it, it it the music went in a different place. True, like the second album on even this new album is cool, but it's it'll never it's it'll never be the genuine sort of. You know, uh, thing that the first album was. Like, yeah. Nobody was making that music then. No, it was it was remarkable really it, to listen to it. It was, yeah. and the yeah. character, and just the world they created, right? Yeah, man. Um, wow. So you wrote that one. So I interviewed them, and I remember being falling in love with it, and really just like, there's nothing I could write that could do this album justice. So I did this whole the whole trick that sometimes writers do is I, I basically wrote took some of what I what Pharrell had said and Chad had said in the interview. And I wrote from their perspective a manifesto of what NERD means and is. I wrote it from Pharrell's voice, and and they loved it so much that they made it the liner notes to the first album. No way. And and it's still I think, I, I think I, I don't know if it actually ended up being in the liner notes, but I think it did. But if you if you look at like what if you look at if you Google NERD bio. Or what who NERD is or in search of is. Right. I think that thing that I wrote is still there. Wow. Um, yeah, that was pretty fun. That's like being a part of that project, you know. It's like, yeah, I mean, I wrote the bios for the first three albums. Really? Like, and on the second album, I remember getting. I got a call from Pharrell's publicist, and she's like, "Pharrell only wants you to write this." So, and, and then and then the third album, same thing. Pharrell only wants you to write this, and and Pharrell described me to somebody. Once in a, when I I'd run into some party or in a room and he described me to somebody as one of the few people in the world who get it. Nice. And I was <laughs> just like, wow, what a fucking compliment. Yeah. Like, I've I, Questlove paid me a similar compliment once and I like, was like, I'm a little like, 
little fanboy. Like, that's an right. amazing thing to hear from somebody. Yeah. But, yeah, like, I don't write bios anymore. I haven't written a period in sure. a very long time. But, like, like for a while, bios was a way to pay the rent and, and also just to, to stunt on your fellow writers. Like, I got this, <laughs> shit. I got this shit before you did. Like, Yo, and that's part of the game. That man. was part of the game. Your hustle is on point, though. I mean, it's, it's, it's on a whole nother level than, you know, where it started, which is yeah, it's it, dope, man. And it was, you know, when I was getting advanced, when I was writing bios, getting the music before writers and then playing it on the radio, that was like a full flex. Yeah. Like, I didn't. I, didn't, I realized it a little bit at the time, but like that was a full flex, and that's just a different era. That shit doesn't happen, right? Anymore, right, right, right. Like, nah, but it's dope. Yeah, I mean, I love it, man. And I just, you know, I appreciate you taking all this time to talk to me. Oh uh, man, I, I, it, I appreciate you asking. I hope it wasn't boring for anybody listening. No, no, no. It was fascinating, <laughs> man. Thanks so much, and um, have a great New Year. Thank you. Happy New Year. Yo, that was amazing. Thank you so much to Joseph Patel and all of y'all for tuning in to our very first episode of 2018, only here on The House List. My name is Peter Agassi. I'm the host. Every episode is edited by CJ. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell a friend to check it out as well. I know there's a lot of different options for podcasts out there. And I know in my intro, I uh, said a few words about some artists and people who have passed, but I couldn't let this particular episode go by without um, sending my my regards to the family and friends of Combat Jack. Of course, a pioneer in hip-hop-oriented podcasts, an incredible legend in the music industry with a storied career and also a great host and visionary for the medium. So uh, I'm a fan I was a fan from the beginning. I was a fan uh, of his website when he was writing, too. So I I feel like I wouldn't be doing this if it wasn't for Combat Jack. And uh, I'm sure that many, many fans of podcasts like this would agree with that, too. So thank you guys again for so much for tuning in. And I'll be back before you know it with a brand new episode of the Houseless Podcast. Peace, y'all. Be well and have a great new year.